0: Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. This week's guest is Phil Spaulding. Now, you may or may not recognize that name, but you've heard tons of music that this guy has played on. He has been a highly in-demand session bassist for almost 40 years now, and he's collaborated with legends like Elton John, Roger Daltrey, Mick Jagger, probably his highest profile gig at least from a visibility standpoint where you would see him maybe and recognize him, at least in the States, was when he collaborated in that sort of short-lived supergroup, GTR. They had a number 14 hit in 1986 with When the Heart Rules the Mind that you're listening to right now. I love this song. I've always loved this song. And I've always been curious about this band and wanted to talk to somebody from it. So I was really glad that Phil took the time to talk to me. We have a really interesting conversation about a lot of the people that he's collaborated with. It's a very highly UK-centric discussion. Most of the people that he has really been with for a long time and worked with over the years are predominantly UK artists. A lot of them you would know. Some of them you may, you may not. It depends on how educated you are on, on music that's come from the UK, especially like new wave music from the late 70s, early 80s. Another really interesting thing, though, about Phil is that he was a massive drug addict for a lot of years. And I'm not just saying that. He says that himself in here a lot. A few years ago, he got his act together. He's now in recovery, and he has been for a while. And recovery is a very important part of his life and it's an important part of his story. And so, you'll hear some stories about how crazy his drug abuse was, and how crazy some of those parties and that decadence got. But then also, on the flip side, how much better his life is now. He's a really fascinating character. I really loved him. And you'll be shocked at how much music he's played on. That you know, everything from Mike Oldfield to Right Said Fred, to Seal, to Terrence Trent Darby. It's insane. Wait till you hear it. He called me from his home in London.
1: Where are you, John? Where are you right now? Where are you based?
2: I'm in Denver, Colorado.
1: Oh, amazing. Oh, right. Red Rocks.
2: Yep, Red Rocks. Did you ever play there?
1: Yeah, yeah. That's one of my greatest memories. I played on the Roger... Altair sings Townsend tour with an orchestra. That was my.
2: Oh really?
1: Yeah, I played up there in '94. Yeah, it was a very historic gig for me. Every I think most of me and my friends, everybody I know that has played at Red Rocks, always talks about it. You know, oh, they always say, "Oh yeah, yeah wow, well, I played at Red Rocks." You know, and then yeah. of course there's the the famous U2 gig there from '83. Yeah, I did. Uh, Doctor Sings Townsend when when he had a hundred piece orchestra. So that's a very big wow. memory. I've been, in fact, I was with Simon last week. Simon Townsend. We played in London last oh. week, and we were talking about that very night. Actually, we were really? talking. About, yeah, yeah, we were talking about that very night. You know, the night in Red Rocks. Simon got to play the first encore on his own. I don't know whether you catch the Who or not on their on their travels. Uh, I didn't know.
2: I've never seen the Who. Always wanted to.
1: Oh well, okay. Yeah, well, they're pretty much a big part of my life because I'm in sure. the kind of extended family. You know, I play uh-huh. play with Simon, I play with Roger, and I play with sort of various combinations of the people within. Okay. You know, that's one of the things that's really been a constant in my life. Well, for 30 years or so, you know. So yeah, uh, we were sure. talking about Denver last week. That is, that is a, it's a wow. good sign. <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh, that's crazy. Wow. Yeah, I yeah. wish I'd seen yeah. that show, man.
3: Yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah. I wasn't
2: sure. I mean, you've had such a long storied career 35, almost yeah. 40 years. Now, I first became aware of you being in the States with GTR. Yeah. And I remember very yeah. specifically, I had never heard the song on the radio. But every weekend, there was something called Friday Night Videos, where on yeah. Friday night, I don't know if you remember that, but on Friday nights on NBC, at about 11.30 at night, they would play an hour and a half, two hours of videos. And my parents wouldn't let me watch MTV for some reason, but I was allowed to watch Friday night videos.
3: So yeah, every yeah, weekend, yeah.
2: me and my friends would stay up late. I was This was 86, right? So I would have been 13, yeah, yeah. 12, 13 years yeah. old. Yeah. And I remember seeing that video... And I'd never heard the song before and I immediately fell in love. And I remember too at the time you guys being sort of marketed as, as a supergroup. I had heard of Hackett and How because I'd heard of Genesis and Yes, but I didn't know yeah. who anyone else was. Where did GTR come from? how did you get, you know, in, involved in all of that?
1: Okay, now I knew Jonathan Louver, the drummer. I knew uh-huh. him from do you know Simon Phillips, who was in Toto?
2: Uh, I know the, the name, Dundley. sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you tell me. Yeah, okay. Well, I played in a couple of bands with Simon in the UK and Europe, actually, uh, in the early 80s. Quite a big pop band, and it was called Toya, which is Toya, T O Y A H, which is actually the name of the girl singer.
2: Right.
1: I'm um, familiar with her. I have some
2: questions
1: about that, too. Oh, okay. So uh, when Simon left Toya, he recommended. Uh, Jonathan for a an audition for us at the end of '82. I think it was just about the end of '82. Now Jonathan didn't make it for one reason or another. The main reason was was that he he was kind of very much like Simon. He was a you know double bass drum man, highly technical, you know mm-hmm. three million drums and all this type of thing. And, we, and and I think at the time we kind of wanted to move on from that sound. We mm-hmm. we wanted someone who was a a little more simpler. Anyway, so mm-hmm. Jonathan didn't make it. We stayed in touch, and then when GTR was being formed, John remembered me. I was invited down to rehearsal room in London one day, and there was Al Hackett, Max Bacon, the singer. I remember Max because he was sitting on a flight case with his long, uh, heavy metal curly hair.
3: Really?
1: yeah, 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 he was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember I got this picture of him in my head, sitting. Oh, Throughout on, on a flight case. And Jonathan, of course, and and there was nobody else. I mean, it wasn't like there were big auditions. They were just kind of uh, hitting on friends, you know. So,
3: mm-hmm.
1: so, so I've been in these situations before. You know, if you can hit on a friend and the friend works, then it's better than going right. through lengthy auditions where you end up playing with like 200 different different people for no reason, you know. You know, I knocked about with them for the afternoon, and then they asked me if I'd like to join the group, and that was it, really. That oh, wow. was December, December 84, that was.
2: Did Steve Howe, because he had sort of just had a bunch of success with Asia, did he sort of think, well, let's replicate this again, let's do another kind of similar supergroup type thing and see how big we can do it again? Was that sort of the thing well, that- you think? I,
1: I think that Steve and Steve uh, were getting on really well, and um, yeah. I think that they they could do something. I know they wanted to explore the technical side of the guitar more. I don't think it was such a pop thing as you would see it in America. You know, in America okay. you would see like a you know you see something like that like Asia Asia as a sort of pop rock crossover. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, sure. I think I think that Steve and Steve both intended to explore you know sort of push the boundaries of the guitar playing okay. especially if they were also experimenting with the guitars that could also also track synthesizer modules at the time mm. so you've got like guitar sounds on the album and you had them in rehearsals where you know they would they would have the guitars that had those kind of um, tracking modules on the guitar that would go through some kind of synthesizer unit and reproduce you know very very big sounds you know much like I suppose you know a guitarist that was replicating a keyboard say put it that way so
3: mm-hmm.
1: the thing about it was is that it was very very big with two of them in the same room because I've stood next to both of their rigs and it's like standing next to God's rig you know what I, I mean
2: yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, now, like was there Steve competition between the two of them? I mean, I mean, you say they were getting along, but, you know, supergroups, not that you called yourselves that at the time, but they never seem to last because individual egos seemed to kind of play a part. Was there eventually some kind of nudging here and there, like, I want this solo?
1: No, I don't think it was between them, um, John. I think it was more that the fact that it wasn't really managed to the optimum. I mean, because, uh, hmm. you know, as a group, we... You know we got on pretty well considering sure. we were a very dis- disparate bunch of people i think we got on very very well actually i mean i discovered the us for the first time and to me it was like being put into a great big gigantic sweet shop and being told i could have what i wanted
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's america yeah i used to live in england i lived in cambridge and you reckon oh, you realize yeah. how that's not available to you anymore you know you realize how scaled down and small how much smaller oh, your world man. becomes? Yeah, I agreed.
1: mean, yeah. Every time, you know, every new city, there was new girls, new pop, mm-hmm. new coke, new bars, yeah. new experiences. I mean, I think I barely slept on that tour. I mean, it was a ball. I had a ball, but I can't yeah. say that it did, did my health any good. But you know, when you're twenty seven, twenty eight, you think you think you're uh, invincible. Going back to the to the dynamics of the group, I think that all things considered, we were all very committed musically to okay. each other and to the music. I, I just think it could have been managed better. You know, I mean, mm. Hackett yeah, sure. had his own manager, Steve Howe had his own manager. The rest of us were sometimes kind of, you know, just sort of being backed around between these sort of deals and, you know, yeah. eyebrow management talks. And then, of course, when you've got two managers, you've also got two sets of lawyers Et cetera, et cetera. You know, right. it's, uh, it was a very, very difficult cake to mix. You yeah.
2: know? Was the second album ever
1: talked about or started working on or anything like that? Well, I, um, it's really funny because I find on the net that someone's got hold of our demos. The demos that are out there are demos that me and Max and Steve did, Steve Howe. Okay. Now, there is, there is a, 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 an album out there that's come out. I don't know, you get these kind of boot labels that sure. seem to operate quietly around the world somehow. I don't mm-hmm. know how they do it. There's an album out there of the demos that me, Steve, and Max Bacon did with Nigel Glockler, the drummer from Saxon, and uh, also another singer called uh, Robert Berry, who went on to sing with Emerson and Palmer in something else. And there's a whole spot of this stuff, but it's not wow. actually a, a second GTR album. But there um, might be
2: fragments out there floating around.
1: Yeah, I can tell you, some of those pregnants are actually going to see the light because, believe it or not, I've had some GTR action today, this morning. Actually, <laughs> really? The very morning, I've had some action, yeah, between Max and Steve Howe and wow. Max and Steve Pocket. There is some stuff that Steve Howe has curated and kept that he made with Max and I. He's looking to to find an outlet for it, put it that huh, way. Okay. We just had to agree on. Uh, who is credited with what, and stuff yeah. like that. But, but, okay. but that's cool. You know, I'm seeing yeah, Steve. Cool. I, saw, I saw Steve before Christmas. He's really friendly, and we We end up just talking about vintage guitars, actually. We're proper, boring musicians. We want to know who's yeah. got an old Stratocaster and who's got right. an old Les Paul, you know. <laughs>
2: yeah. What happened to Max? I mean, he sort of fell off the face of the earth a little bit. I mean, I, I hope that's not too, you know, insensitive of me to say, but your name would pop up in credits here and there, and
1: yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. the other two, you
2: know, the Steves, of course, but Max, we didn't really ever hear much
1: from Max again. Right, okay, well, Max, I got Max um, involved with some stuff with Mike Oldfield, because I have received oh, paper okay. old Oldfield across the years, so he's got some singing credits on some of Mike's European stuff. He sang on an album called Earth, Earth Moving, Earth Moving. Versions. I know that might use two different singers as well. And then he decided to buy a pub. And, oh, uh, really? I'd had a pub or two over the years, and he has one in the far north west of England at the moment, right now. Okay. In a re- region called Cumbria, and he, he runs a pub and he runs music up there. And I've been up there to play. And uh, and also he's got uh, a house in Spain, so he he kind of oh
2: well then he's goes, fine okay good
1: yeah yeah oh yeah 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 good. no no he's not impoverished Max he was a very okay, very good. sensible well,
2: very you know, sensible
1: man okay yeah.
2: good good you never know with you know if people if they leave music because they want to or because they have to and you just yeah. that's, those are again going back that's the story I want to find out you know
1: but on the back of the conversations that we were having today I'm due to see mac because i'm going over to write with him because we are uh there's there's something brewing okay put it yes. that way so I, I i can't i can't really say that much because, oh sure that's fine
2: uh, but that's great yeah,
1: yeah 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 there's something brewing because max and i have got to go and see hackett too so
2: very cool let's dig into some of the other stuff now you from what i understand you are you're a child actor I guess at some point you do some commercials or something and then sort of turn your attention into music. It was modeling. Okay. So you did some child modeling and then you turned to music and you've been doing music since you were a teenager. I mean, it sounds like really you've never had to get a regular job or do anything other than, you know, exactly what you wanted to do, which was music, right?
1: Well, I did two years in a bank.
2: Oh, you did? When was that?
1: Yeah. Between the ages of 17 and 19. Okay. The reason I, I did two years in the bank was that when I quit school in 75, I quit school early, okay? I went to a very, very good school in London where the type of school you're where you're expected to certainly go to university. But once I was playing, I was already gigging, uh, when I was at school. My kind of academic work really, well, it became non-existent. It went really down the tubes, you know. But I needed to sustain myself. Now I got a job with a bank because a friend of mine, funnily enough, he was a friend of mine who introduced me to pot. Actually, <laughs> oh wow, great, yeah, yeah,
2: Good friend. yeah, he, okay.
1: he, uh, yeah. yeah, he, And he, yeah, he was a pot smoker working for a bank. There you go. You know what I mean? Okay. So, yeah. Uh, he said, "Look, this is a great job I've got." He said, "Do you want to try and get this job?" And the job was working in one of the early kind of advanced computer centres for banks. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, the old computer centers used to run on these gigantic IBMs. I don't know whether you know anything about computers, but...
2: Uh, you, you know, yeah, so I work they, in computers,
1: yeah, and I used to work oh, at okay. IBM, actually. Yeah. Oh, okay, so you know the old, the, the, the big old IBMs and uh, mm-hmm. multiple virtual storage and fixed head disks yep. and stuff like yep. that, yeah? Yeah. Okay, okay, so, so the thing about that is that you could get a, a job with the bank, which was a shift job, and the shift involved what we called earlies, which was the daytime, middles, which was the evenings, and then late's, which was through the night, and then offs. So what you did, you did four days early, four days middle, four days late, and then four days off. Now, with the four days coinciding with a weekend, you could have six days off in a row. Okay, right. so, yeah. so a lot of the time, I could run my early career around this job, if you see what I mean. And then what I did was I did that until I was sure I could sustain myself from music, which came by December 77. The first proper band I was in uh, got a record deal. I I signed for the princely sum of £50 a week, and I thought, that's (laughs) it. Um, I make money out of what I want to do, so £50 a week. i go, you know, £50 a week, you know. I did have a regular job, and I must say that you know, maybe not to my credit, I didn't really do the job with a with a, with a great conscience or anything. You know, I know what you mean. Sometimes just we
2: just have to make a living, right? We do yeah, something. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I know yeah. what you mean. Yeah, sure.
1: well, also, I, want, I wanted to have good equipment, you know, I need to have good equipment, good clothes, uh, good yeah. guitars and stuff like that. You know, I wanted all that, you know, because I was quite serious about music. So, sure. So, so that just provided me with a, with a means to an end for that particular yeah. time.
2: You know? Oh, that's great. Was it a particularly sweet moment when you got to go into the bank and quit your job because you were going to go off and be a rock star? Do you remember yeah, that it moment? it was.
1: Yes, it it was because because I had to give a month's notice and I worked the notice out to the last minute. I faithfully worked the notice out. I didn't just tell them I was leaving and piss off. You know, uh-huh. I, I worked because it was the last month of 1977 and the, and the last bit of work i did for the bank was on the stroke of midnight from 77 into 78 the new year by that time i was going into the bank with dyed spiky black hair and earrings on and everything and they just thought i looked like a scarecrow you know of course
2: <laughs> right you've clearly <laughs> yeah. focused on something else now so yeah, if yeah your yeah. first your first thing is that bernie torme is that
1: how you say yeah name? yeah bernie torme yeah yeah, yeah okay
0: A lot
2: of stuff that I'm guessing was much bigger in the U.K. than in the States. Bernie Torme, I listened to recently because I knew I'd be talking to you, and it was great, but I didn't know who he was growing up. And then same with Original Mirrors, which I love. I bought that one because that's right in my wheelhouse, but I didn't know them either. And then Toya, now is that, do I have the right sequence of events here? It's B2B, and then you go on to Original Mirrors, and then on to
1: Toya, and and Toya becomes sort of a stable job for a little while. Yeah, 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 that was, that was the way up, really. I mean, it was actually, I was very lucky, it was up all the way. I mean, Original Mirrors was a band that should have made it. You, me, I, we don't dance, we just cry.
4: Built a desire to shake your shoes. Spending the nights in late night revelry, doing it right.
1: many reasons i can look back and probably work it all out quite easily now but it was such a one of those bands that was so powerful it just had a very short shelf life you know because you know we could all be screaming at each other in the dressing room and then go on and do the best show you've ever seen you know but it had that kind of violent energy you know where we were only really friends on stage (laughs) really oh man well some bands are like that and that power really came out, you know, that sort of real, uh, almost violent power came out of it. And, we, and the, our, our shows were explosive. I mean, unfortunately, in the end, we actually blew up. So <laughs> Yeah. No, now, but, that some of that,
2: you know, that band famously, you know, a name that Americans might recognize as Ian Brody, who went on to do yeah. Lightning Seeds, he was in that band. Yeah. let rain. He seems to be an artist with a very strong focus and a strong will. Was he? Did you sort of see the seeds in that of that when you were working with him? Do you think some of the restlessness maybe in the band was a restlessness of his to get on and do something different?
1: I don't well, even know think, was he the
2: leader of that band or considered the leader he, of that band.
1: He was no, he was kind of in partnership with the singer. They were like the leaders. But it's safe to say that Ian and I couldn't be in the same room very easily. But we're friends now. We laugh about it. It's funny. I I saw Ian. Uh, let see. I saw Ian last June. Actually, I mean, it's a long time ago. But we've actually taken the trouble to apologise to each other for our behaviour when we were young and wild. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, it's nice when you can do that. He, he says, "Oh God, I can't believe what I was like." And I say, "Hey, hey, you can't believe it. I can't believe it." You know, <laughs> right. now we're like sober middle-aged men. We laugh. Okay. We laugh about the madness of being a kid. Sure. You know. But Ian was very driven, and I think that Ian definitely needed to to find his own way and be in control. He he had to be autocratic, Ian, and I think sure. in that kind of band, well, we had probably three people, me, Steve, and Ian, that probably were all similarly inclined, you know, so mm-hmm. that it was kind of like a pissing competition, really. I mean, sure. I mean to to be, to be fair... Steve and Ian really should have been calling the shots because they were the leaders, the starters. They were the people that that started the band. I mean, they went on for a little while after I left. Uh, Sadly, they didn't get anywhere, but I think it was because it wasn't just me leaving. It was the chemistry of those five particular Mm. people when I was part of the chemistry, which which made the band work. Once any one person had gone then it wasn't the same anymore it was definitely diluted and they kind of it out and yeah. probably good for ian because at the end of the day ian managed to carve for himself a very successful solo career and sure uh, did, yeah and, and and good luck to him you know because I, right. I know i know some of the things he had to overcome to get there so he worked very very hard he was single-minded and he made it so great yeah you know.
2: good okay and so then toya comes along I had never heard of her until a few years ago when I saw Urga Music War, for the first time. You're not in uh, it, though.
1: No, no, I'm not in it personally, no. Yeah,
2: but it's from, like, 1980, 1981 or something. I saw it a few years ago for the first time, and she, you know, it shows, like, 30 different bands. Some went on to be huge, some not, in their infancy playing, you know, a show. And she was on there, and I'd never heard of her before that. So I just assumed she was one of those things that was kind of a bigger deal in the UK.
1: I was in the second incarnation of the band.
2: Oh, got it. Okay. Okay. So there were yeah, a that, couple
1: of them. So, so you oh, probably God. saw the first incarnation.
2: Probably. And Cause just were, yeah. a month or yeah. I think over the holidays, I watched the movie Jubilee for the first time. Oh, yeah.
1: Right, yeah, 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 cool. She's yeah. in
2: that. And so then yeah. I started thinking just recently before I even reached out to you, it was like, well, I guess Toya was a bigger deal. She's a, and isn't she like a TV presenter now or something in in the UK she's still around right she's still
1: she's, a thing she's a, she she's a TV celebrity more than anything i mean she's she's an actress a presenter um you know she's a bit of a sort of uh woman's power you know so okay. i suppose she's got a little bit of a it would be fair to say she has a a feminist stance okay but she, she she's never stopped working you know she she's uh well she worked when i was around her and 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 strangely enough she she mailed me the day before yesterday as well so uh, it's really? funny all these people you're talking about are kind of on the radar uh, at the moment yeah, yeah. well you know because we, you know we 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 get older and uh sure you know there were certain anniversaries and celebrations coming up and we are always talking about oh maybe you know there's a reunion here and a yeah. reunion yeah. There. and there's plenty of possibilities and uh
2: well, you've done so many things, too. I would imagine stuff like that pops up all the time. I mean, with yeah, all the different bands people. and big songs you played on. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, I joined Toya in uh, Christmas 1980. I f- first recorded with them, and I got the Toya job because I'd been in Original Mirrors. That's why. Uh,
2: that's, okay, that's what I figured. And, yeah. is, and is your career, I mean, each each one of these, the point of me bringing that up is that each one of these jobs, we'll call them, is building on the other in terms of getting bigger and more popular and probably yeah. more lucrative and yeah. shining a brighter light on you, as you're right? Is each band getting bigger and bigger as you go?
1: Yeah, yeah, pretty much, i mean after toya it was mike oldfield and like toya yeah. had had a massive success in the uk but limited success in europe although there had been some opportunities but then in retrospect i mean the guitar player in toyo is still possibly my closest friend in the music business to this oh, really oh good yeah yeah and we're, we're still partners and we still work we still play Great. together and stuff now we would say that again the management of the whole project wasn't optimized for various reasons i mean it's not really good form for me to say oh someone did this and someone did that i mean it was a long it was a long time ago but it, it could have been sold better in in some of the other countries we did go to other countries we did a european tour we were popular on a kind of cult level but we never really made that leap into into you know across the board uh, commercialism, yet right. the, the band after I was with, my Coalfield band, when my Coalfield was running bands, I walked straight into a worldwide here. countries, you know, and it was like, uh, that was a really big leap, you know, yeah. that, was, that, that was kind of, you know, not only a leap, I mean, I'd been doing arenas and sports halls and theatres and reasonably large concerts, you know, up until then, with my goalfield we were suddenly into soccer stadiums, you know, yeah, that's quite some leap, you know, learning yeah. to play in front of 50,000, you know.
2: And w- that sounds like it could have possibly happened overnight. How are you feeling? When I, now, keep in mind, part of your story is that: Are you f- a full-blown drug addict at this point, or are you just a partier like most people? Is it I'm overruling par- your I'm life a- or anything?
1: No, no, no. I'm a partier, but let's say the party was pretty much every day. I mean, yeah, I that's what I'm. Was, that's
2: what I'm thinking. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. I wasn't. I did. I wasn't. Uh, uh, my using wasn't dark. You know, I think there's a difference between it being a young person's partying, if you like, uh, with the means to pursue it,
3: Mm -hmm. as
1: opposed to later on in my life when it was definitely dark, and it had become a priority, and and, and, and the using is for different reasons, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense, you know. Absolutely. I mean, at the the time when we were away with Toya, and, you know, when we were kids, you know, we used to use speed, and we used to sort Mm -hmm. of run around the west end of London probably drinking too much and chasing girls, you know, and stuff, Mm -hmm. but uh, then all of a sudden you get some pop success, the finances go up and you think, hey, hey, I can buy Coke now. Wow, yeah, this is great. Yeah. At the same time, as I was sort of making this elevation uh, from group to group to group, uh, those kind of habits were also becoming more prominent mm-hmm. because I had the means, really. Sure. You know, And if, if you're yeah. going to talk about addiction, I can see how I was an addict, but it wasn't ruling my life in the same way as it was, let's say... Four, 10 years after that into the nineties, that was when oh, really? I had a, that's when it started getting that, dark. That's when I had a problem, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, Well I was gonna
2: ask you, I mean you mentioned, you know, your career having spanned five decades basically. I mean we always yeah. hear that the eighties are like the headiest time in terms of yeah. excess and drugs and money just being thrown around. You having been a part of the music industry for so long would you concur that that is true, or are those drugs and the money and the debauchery, or whatever, however you want to say it, is that a constant that you've seen at basically the same level throughout your career, or did it especially spike in the eighties, like they've told us that it has?
1: No, I think the the eighties was a particularly hedonistic time. I mean, you had yeah really? big companies throwing lots of money at loads of different groups. I mean, that was a, remember that was a time when when you could still have big record companies who would actually, regardless of the hedonistic lifestyles, they would actually invest in groups over two or three albums. You know, it it wasn't like, we'll we'll throw a single or two at the wall, and if it it fails, then you're off, you know. There was definitely a, a lot of money around. I mean, I could be... You know, even if I was in a group, I still could be doing two or three sessions a day in London. You know, I can go, I could, I could go between three studios in London and almost charge people what I liked, especially right. if I had a reputation, especially as I was quick and especially as I was pretty good at what I was doing. Yeah. Uh, the only thing for me was I was probably scoring in between sessions, right. and then also you had the kind of uh, the the there was also services which were able to deliver to you if you weren't able to get to. Sure.
2: The and I'm sure you so, knew you all know. those people.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, I probably pay for lots of their life. Yeah, don't worry about it. I bet you it. did.
2: Yeah. Geez. <laughs> you know, did you grow up wanting to be in one band? and like the stones or something, or the who, we talked about the who, and ride that out forever? Or was it always your plan to kind of hop around and be more of a journeyman and sort of go wherever your mood or your whims took you? Not that it was that, you know, spontaneous, but it does sound like you're kind of moving up along the ladder back and forth. Yeah,
1: I was, I was always, um, and I am to this day, and I, I am very faithful, and I have, uh, it's funny because, I still play with Bernie Torme now. Uh, I mean, oh, like, really? you know, li- little one-offs and stuff. You know,
3: uh-huh.
1: and uh, I played with him in um, uh, last time I played in, in October in Scotland, and I'm always berating him and saying, you know what? If you hadn't run off, we could have been really successful. <laughs> because, <laughs> right. because, well, I mean, I mean, yeah. from Bernie's point of view, you have got to realise, you know, he was when he got an offer from Ian Gillen, he was 26. And he felt that he had to take it, and you can see from his point of view. Funny enough, if he hadn't taken it, maybe I hadn't. I wouldn't have had the career that I'd had. But you know, some of my friends have stayed, kept their bands together, and stayed together all these years. Yeah. There's a little part of me that thinks I wish I'd been with a bunch of guys that could have been able to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I do like um, the idea of you know developing and experimenting. I think yeah. I think to a degree with Toya. If you look at my tenure with Toya, mm-hmm. which is essentially two years, uh, we did a hell of a lot in two years. My you God, did, we yeah. didn't stop. Yeah, we really, yeah. really didn't stop. And you can see a a path. You can see a development, a change. You can see a right. document of the times we were going through. Yeah. Uh, and, and oddly enough, more than one I've...
2: album in there. Yeah, wow, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah well, like you,
2: you were there for one album. Toya, I think it
1: was yeah. two or three, right? Yeah, yeah, there was two studio albums and a live album, and okay. also we used to do we used to do one-off singles because we didn't want to take too many singles off the albums either. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We, we were very conscious of the fans, and I must say we were. You know, it wasn't it yeah. was because you know, we weren't particularly doing it for the money. I mean, was, the money on the side was nice, but we were always thinking music always. And uh, yeah, we did. Um, let's think. I think we did in my time. We did. Oh, we did at least three singles that weren't on albums you know, okay. at all. Um, it's okay. a little bit like I Can, I can See for Miles, No the Who, that's yeah. not on an album, you know? Sure, yeah. And and we did that because we did not want to take another single off of albums and rip off the fans. We wanted to do right. something new. You know, I mean, the thing about this is when you're young and naive and you want to do the music, there's always a lot of business people around you that can mm-hmm. manipulate the situation and probably take more from you than you think they're taking, put it right. that way. Right, right. So, yeah. so... We, we we all lost a lot of money, but I mean, hey, you know that's uh, as <laughs> part, uh, part of an expensive education. So sure, <laughs> sure, and
2: it worked out. Would you look back on your career? Would you say that the biggest it ever got would that have been with Mike Oldfield or would that have been with GTR? Because it seems like after GTR, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Again, all I have is you know the stuff I've kind of researched and your websites and allmusic.com yeah. and Wikipedia it seems like after GTR you're not really in a band anymore you're kind of a gun for hire from then on out for a while
1: yeah okay. so it depends, what, it depends what you qualify as big because if I want to say to people what's big then I've got to say the Lion King album without the well- John's.
4: there's But it's wild
2: Right. and that's why I was kind of clarifying, because you, you played, uh, that's probably the biggest song or the biggest thing you've ever been a part of, but as far yeah. as the biggest stage that you, where people would have, where you were part of the draw, you know, yeah. people would have my Michael Field, that was bigger than GTR, okay.
1: Well, GTR was pretty much a one-country thing. Mark Oldfield is, okay. is, is is far more worldwide. I mean, it wasn't. Okay. He, we, we didn't go to the U.S. at the time because there was a specific reason. I know we were slated to go to the U.S., and I can't remember why we didn't. I think it was something to do with Mike needing time off or having some kind of tax deal going on. I don't know. I don't know whatever it was, but we didn't make it to the U.S., with Mike which was a shame because I think Moonlight Shadow was a hands down US hit. You know, you know it was it was that kind of Dire Straits vibe. I always thought Moonlight yeah. Sh- Shadow was was Mike's take on Dire Straits and I think that that could have been a, a number one forever in the in the states yeah. you know. But Yeah, I think you're right. But still you know there again you know it was number one pretty much everywhere else in the world and it still it still probably pays me annually more than Oh, probably more really? than any other song I'm on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. Yeah. See,
2: that's yeah. so interesting because uh, up until researching you, I don't know that I knew it. You know, I knew that it, yeah. from researching you that you had referenced it as being a huge hit, but I didn't. I wasn't that familiar with it, and yet that's the one that probably pays you the most. That's so interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's wow. probably also because there are only four of us on the record, so it's divided ah, up um, among, yeah. amongst, amongst less people.
3: Yeah,
1: <laughs> I mean, you can be in, you. You can be in the studio. I can leave the studio being the fifth person on a hit tune, and then by the time I hear it, they put twenty string players on it.
2: Yeah, <laughs> very true. Very true. And
1: then, yeah. Then, then all, all of a sudden, it's divided between twenty five instead of exactly. You know, then there makes, goes
2: part of your piece of the pie.
1: So, makes was, difference. yeah,
2: was songwriting ever a part of your job or a part of your life? Because it seems like. I don't know, again, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't see a lot of writing credits. I see more, you know, contributions with the instrument. Or are you in there writing
1: as well? Yes. No, not really. In fact, you know, that's something that's been a point that I've been um, addressing in my recovery. Now, that's something that I let slip because I never really claimed what I think should have been mine. Mm. Now, I don't know. There'll probably be a lot of people that may not agree with this, but you know, I put some pretty big chunks into people's compositions but I I always never really had the confidence to push myself forward. Do you know Wishing Well by Terrence St.
2: Darby? I absolutely do.
5: Kissing like a bandit stealing time Underneath the sycamore train but by the awesome valentines to my sweet to lover and maid slowly but surely
1: Okay, so the baseline in the middle, that's mine. Okay. I'm going
2: to ask you more about that one in a little bit, but yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh, okay, okay. Now, now that that was, I I I wanted to break that song up in the studio, and I had many happy hours of heated discussion with Terence about that. The demo I have doesn't have that bass riff in it at all. I argued in the studio that we needed to break the song up. And funny enough, I think I was pretty pig headed about it at the time, actually. Probably, I probably had really good Coke that day. I don't know. Probably. And uh, I got my way. And then Terry agreed. And then he worked on me with the riff. The riff I had was basically taken straight from Let's Dance by David Bowie. That was my idea. I said, let's wow. get this Let's Dance riff in. And, you know, don't like this. And uh, he, ch- he changed the, the second half of it, I suppose, because he wanted to put his imprint on it or whatever. But if I hadn't have argued for that, that wouldn't exist. For example, I could argue that that's a valid writing credit. Of course, of course. I would think so. uh, Well, I never fought my corner. I never fought my corner. I mean, the GTR album, there were lots and lots of things. Most of the GTR album was brought to us in very sort of, uh, how can I say, um, basic forms. And we, we rehearsed the stuff together we learned it we rehearsed it and then we just put a lot of the bits and the licks and the Mm -hmm. riffs and stuff into the songs Mm -hmm. and when it came down to the credits at the end of the day max jonathan and i were given a third of one song each Mm -hmm. that's what happened and i think that was their kind of nod to our contribution and i think You know, the politics and the power was with, obviously, the main guys and stuff. And, you know, they'd obviously done a a publishing deal whereby they had to have the lion's share, which was quite understandable at the time. But I would say that we were probably worth more writing credits in the album than we actually got. But, you know, there again, i say from my point of view, John, I just really didn't have the confidence to fight my corner a lot in those days. There's loads, right. I mean, even Right Said Fred, I could say. Uh, the Right Said Fred album, I mean, I'm Too Sexy, which uh, uh-huh. is another big song in my life. I'm too sexy for my shirt, too sexy for my shirt, so sexy it hurts. I am too sexy for Milan, too sexy for Milan, New York and Japan.
4: I am too sexy for your party, too sexy for your party, no way I'm disco
1: dancing,
4: I'm a model, you know.
1: Turn on the catwalk. Their first album did eight million, and I pretty much did that album from scratch. You and I'm sure. I could sort of carve a few bits and pieces out of that, and I was with those guys last week because we just remade "On Two Sexy. Twenty fifth anniversary this year, so they're they're re releasing it and doing a twenty fifth anniversary version. And uh, I had to go down and try and recreate the bass I did in the first place which was very hard to do sober.
2: <laughs> I, mean, I bet. I bet. Oh man.
1: When I did it the first time I was loaded so I had to Yeah, yeah. Oh uh, it man. Was quite funny.
2: You know yeah, that that well. song came out when I was living in Cambridge. Oh. It was in ninety one. Oh, oh. yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah
2: yeah and yeah, I remember yeah. that song so well because that was the era when Brian Adams, Everything I Do, I Do For You was number one yeah. for Red, months. Forever. And, you know, Americans don't get as caught up in the chart as much as the Brits do. And so we would wake yeah. up every Saturday morning and watch the chart show to see where yeah. Brian Adams had landed. And so your, that song, I'm Too Sexy, and I think like Get Off by Prince and Set Adrift yeah. on Memory Bliss by PM Don, these were all songs yeah. that would have gone number one had Brian yeah. Adams. Not (laughs) been blocking everyone out the whole time. Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Exactly. That's what it seemed like to me anyway.
2: And what's funny was I came back to the states, and I'm Too Sexy was just starting to hit in the states, and it it wasn't until I came back to the states that I realized that the song was a joke. Up to that point, I don't know why, but I was listening to it like, who are these guys talking about this kind of stuff? Where did they get off? And then, (laughs) out of context, hearing it in the states for whatever reason. I'm like, oh, they're kidding. This is supposed to be fun. I didn't ever realize that before.
1: Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it's still fun, and they've made a good career out of it. And again, uh, to to this day, now those guys have been completely faithful to me. You know, we're really tight to this day, and and I'm working with them on on various things. They're working with me on some of my hepatitis C campaign work. Yes, I want to ask
2: you about that uh, as well. Yeah,
1: so, I mean, you know, and and again, back in the day, in 91, I remember that year. I mean, well, I mean, most of those years I was particularly loaded. I mean, I think if mm-hmm. you want to talk about the using, the using had, had become dark by that point. You know, I had a failing marriage. I was never at home. I, there was one period of time when I worked for five years with no break. And then I was asking myself, why am I doing this? I'm making all this money. It doesn't really mean anything to me. You know, I'm just getting more and more loaded just kind of in, in this kind of netherworld, you know, and I seemed to spend my life in studios and at drug dealers and in bars yeah. and in bed with loose women, you know. I mean, yeah. well, it wasn't all bad. It wasn't all bad. So then <laughs> no, it was a party for a while until it stopped being a party.
2: That's why people do drugs. Yeah, right?
1: yeah exactly. For a no. while. Well, yeah, I say to people, I went to a party in 1980, but I was left there on my own in 2005, you know. Even the bar hands and the sweepers have gone home by the time I started, yeah. you know. Um, so so ninety one was a quite a big year. It's, it's also okay. the year I, I first worked with Seal. So 91, 92, one ninety two, I'm Too Sexy was a was a really big hit, and then we just wow, well, we were off. We did we had a we had a solid party, you we know, banging yeah. into ninety three. So yeah, I mean, and on, and on your original point, some of the writing I've had that I've had disputes over too because you'll also find that there's always someone who thinks they wrote something because they happen to be in the same building as you at the time, you know, with me being sarcastic. No,
2: that's Um, come up before actually on this podcast. Other, you know, the, the, when, where and
1: why of songwriting credits. It's a hot topic. Yeah. 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 So, so I'm, I'm looking after that these days. I'm pretty tight on that really. I mean, I mean, I've just had, I've just worked out some credits with Steve Howe
3: mm. because
1: we've got to some of this stuff I did over with Steve post-GTR. Mm. He's probably going to see the light these days. And, good. And uh, he invited me down and we listened to the stuff and we said, who wrote who, when, yeah. what, how, and we didn't really know. So we just shared it, you know. So yeah, okay. good,
2: okay. One of the things that we talk about on this podcast a lot is the money side. And it sounds like mm-hmm. they, based on what we've just been saying, is it is it fair to assume then that when you receive a royalty check, the majority of those royalties are from playing credits versus songwriting credits? You Because know, the music industry now is, like we were saying, very different than before. There's not piles yeah. of money going around to throw at you to come play on someone's album.
1: So yeah, yeah.
2: how do you primarily well, make a living now? Is it off the royalties and then kind of one-off shows? and how do you pay your bills today so to speak
1: well okay so my plays my radio plays give me a kind of living that each year by I wouldn't have to do any other work if I didn't want to okay Good.
2: that's what I wanted to
1: know I get enough from my radio plays each year to provide me with a comfortable basic living apart from that by reputation I'm able to still go particularly to other countries actually well, I just spent the week in France, which I may have told you on our messages. I've just uh-huh. I just got back from France on Friday. So, I'm in France and Italy a lot. You know, I meet people that sort of uh, say rich industrialists who think their daughter can sing a little bit, so
3: yeah. They yeah. uh
1: they, they they they're willing to sort of pay for someone who's got some kind of reputation uh, to come over and do an album for them. And that way, in fact, that is actually quite lucrative. You know, I can still go and do an album for what we call old-fashioned money. You Uh know, if um, I'm going to Sweden next week to do the very thing, some guy, industrialist, who uh, has got a daughter who can sing, and she's very hot, as in hot-looking. You know, because of my background, includes people like Elton John and Seal and Robbie Mm -hmm. Williams, particularly as a Mm -hmm. pop-act this side of the world. People are still prepared to hire me, so I get to go to Rome and Milan, right. Paris, you know, Oslo, wow. Stockholm and places like that. And that that's just the the, the sugar on top of the cream, actually, John. Sure. You know, it really is, because to me, that's all extra, you know. And then, of course, I've got my my stock gigs with Roger Daltrey.
2: Yeah, oh, really? So you still collaborate with him
1: regularly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. R- R- Roger's always got some gigs to do in and right. out of the Who. He doesn't want to stop, so I'll get a call to to do some corporate thing
3: uh-huh. somewhere,
1: you know, somewhere wherever it may be, you know. So yeah. we get the I can still experience Excellent. the private jet syndrome. You know, oh wow, nice! Kind of Good quite for you, man.
2: You deserve that.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, yeah it's okay. Yeah, it's because one cool. of the things I was wondering about
2: is if we go a little, you know, a little more specific on your recovery. One of the articles I think I was reading about you was saying that you sort of stepped away from music for a little while. Or maybe you don't tour or go to certain places because there's a lot of demons there, which I totally get. Did you find when you wanted to come back to music and do it more actively, did you have to rebuild anything? And was that a struggle? Or was your reputation still intact to the point where people like Roger Daltrey, there's no question he's still going to call you? I guess I'm asking Is was there a dip? When you decide to come back, are you rebuilding anything from scratch, or are you sort of picking up, thankfully, where you left off before? Just without. No, price?
1: I was picking up from scratch pretty much, because a lot of my connections and my friends really thought that I wasn't going to make it. Roger gave me my first gig in recovery, but I think that's also because the WHO organization has a very special connection with this kind of syndrome obviously because of what's happened because of what they've seen over the years but when i was in rehab the first person i saw was zach starkey the first night i was let out of rehab and that wasn't until after i'd been in there for five months the first night i was let out of rehab i was chaperoned and i was taken to an oasis gig where i saw zach then i went to see him at his at his uh flat in london on a saturday morning and they were really the first people in in the music business i was in connection with well to be fair i was actually in connection with them just before i went to rehab so they understood more from huh. a personal point of view and it wasn't like that i was a great player or i could do them a favor they treated me like a like a member of the family actually it just picked up from there and uh I wanted to rebuild it slowly. I didn't want to go pell-mell back into it, you know. I sure, wanted to get sure. myself a good, solid foundation. I worked in a in what we would call in England a charity shop, which you might call a thrift store. Okay. Um, uh-huh. Okay, but, but where the profits go to charity. I did that for two years just to experience normal life, you know, yeah, and also yeah. to learn how to volunteer. The volunteering is, is part of my life today now yeah. you know, cuz i do i do a lot of work in the hepatitis c world and you know, I still go back to my old rehab every week. I mean, I ended up living wow. in the area, you know, so I live like, uh, how far away? I live about 10 miles from my old rehab. So I go back and see all the new guys coming in, you know, and it keeps me clean, you know, when you see the guys coming in in, in, in the same state that you were in 10 years ago, yeah. you know, hey, I, I, I don't want to go back there, buddy, i tell you. Right. <laughs> I, I got trained as well in therapy. And counselling, and that's yeah. I think I read
2: was I read some somewhere that I don't know if you would consider yourself a born again Christian, but you had sort of come back to the church, whatever church that might be. Is that sort of another thing that I don't know if that's still true or accurate? But if it is, is that another kind of motivator in the service aspect of your life now that you've put such a Mm. premium on?
1: Well, I I mean, I was, like, uh, baptized into the Christian church when I was a baby, and I I never really left it. I just think, you know, I'm not a gung-ho, pious uh, Christian particularly, but I have my belief. You know, let's say I know the difference between right and wrong now, or I try and practice the difference between right and wrong now, you know. That's really what it boils down to. Yeah, I think so. You know, I'm not. Uh, I mean, my partner. You know, she goes to church, and you know, I get the nice stirs. My church is Sunday morning alone in front of the TV. That's fine <laughs> enough for me. <laughs> you know, it do- it doesn't mean that I don't believe. I have the belief so in I'm me. With uh, you. But, I'm with I'm with it, sure. But uh, you know, and I go. Yeah, yeah. I go. We all our thing. Yeah, yeah, I go. I go to church when I can, or when I feel like it, or when I'm when I'm on the run somewhere. You know, sure, and and yeah. of course, actually doing. The work I do, I've just spent the week in uh, Strasbourg in the uh, east of France, and uh, and how can you not go to a cathedral like that yeah, and sit in all totally. and, and and feel overawed, you yeah, know?
3: Yeah, and think, totally.
1: hello, yeah, this is what I need to feel. I am actually nothing in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, you know, when I know, that'll do it. You're yeah. sitting in those type of buildings. If you can feel what's going on, it's good for me, you know, because you, when you... When I think about, in my darkest days, actually, I did used to go to St. Paul's Cathedral in London, and I used to pray a lot in there. And uh, they never turned me away. You know, I mean, I didn't look too good. You've got to realize I I didn't look a picture of health. But I used to go into the cathedral, and I used to sit there, and I just used to pray for something to happen, you know, for, for, for whatever reason. And I don't know, here we are now. I'm in my 11th year of recovery, and everything is and dandy and you know, I just I think I'm just about as happy as I could be actually John really?
2: and it sounds like you have a girlfriend and your life is full because you're still being asked to contribute and work on things and if even if you yeah. didn't you can live comfortably with the money from all the great things you've done so far right yeah and oh, I'll tell you what I n-
1: I, n- I never have to buy a concert ticket <laughs> is that great? That's I where a lot of my spending money goes, man. <laughs> I, I, can get, I can get a pass for pretty much any show I want to go because yeah. I know somebody. <laughs> <laughs> it's the
2: best. Oh, yeah, safe, yeah, that saves hundreds is, of dollars. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. Good for yeah. you, man. I'm so happy.
0: Pretty cool, right? Phil Spaulding. Okay, that's only half the story. We are releasing a bonus episode kind of like we did a couple of months ago with David Frank of The System, where Phil and I discuss seven or eight of his collaboration songs or albums that he's played on that I really particularly like. So if you want to have a kind of a deeper dive into some of the bands that he's played with, like Talk Talk, Heaven 17, OMD, Seal, Terrence Trent Darby, we're going to have a part two bonus episode with Phil discussing those experiences specifically okay huge thanks to yan makiewicz for producing the podcast yan the man please everybody find us on itunes and subscribe to the podcast if you're new to it and this is the first time you've joined us and you like stories about musicians that you probably know but don't hear enough about that's what we do here go back into the archives and see if there's anyone else in there whose names you recognize bands you recognize songs you remember that you hadn't heard from for a while Find those and listen to those episodes. I'm sure you're gonna like those too. And then maybe you'll expand and listen to the ones you don't know because they're all really interesting. Write us a review while you're there. You can find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can communicate with me that way. Send me a message on there if you want. I'm usually really responsive. I try to take requests. Anyone who can think of a band or an artist that they love that they would like me to track down, I try to do that. I'm working on a few of those for some people right now actually. Or you can send me an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. You can try that too. You can find our YouTube channel. It's not a channel, but a playlist on YouTube. Just type in the Hustle Podcast playlist. Or you can find us on Twitter at the hustlepod. All right. We'll talk to you all later. Bye, everybody. Come back for Phil's bonus episode.